We're in a whole bunch of chunk of verses this evening as we continue in our series through the book of First Peter entitled A Living Hope. Jesus Christ is our living hope because he resurrected from the dead. And because he resurrected from the dead, our hope isn't placed in simply a belief, it's based in a fact. And as Christians who are living their lives based on that living hope, our living should be fundamentally different than people that live with no hope. And so Peter, the apostle who wrote this book to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, Electric Horn for Knowledge of God the Father, Peter, when he wrote this book, was writing to people like you and me, people scattered abroad. And as he's writing this book, he's making note here that it is time that we start living in a way that reflects the change that should be in our lives. As we talked about all the things that God has done for us, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ from the dead. When we know that we have this hope that is incorruptible, unfading. There are things about it that will change and shape our lives to make us into the people that God wants us to be. And so it's going to be an exciting study. Why don't we pray as we open? Father, as we open up this Bible study, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would move powerfully in each and every one of our lives, that we would see something differently, that we would know something differently, that we would read your word, and we would just feel compelled to action. We would read this book, Lord, and we would feel Peter. We would feel his words jumping from the page. We would see your heart behind it, Lord, because we know that this isn't just any other book, but this is the Word of God. So we trust it, we believe it, and we read it now in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Peter says in verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter here uses this expression, beloved. It's a little more than just friends. It's a little more than people I care about, but people I love. Even though it's an archaic term, you can still feel the weight of what he's saying. Beloved, I beg you, beg you, you are sojourners, you are pilgrims. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Here, you feel the weight of what Peter is saying. He's pleading, pleading with us as Christians, don't get distracted by everything else. Don't forget who you really are and where you are going. The first point tonight is don't forget where you are going. You see, the, by, by definition, if you are a pilgrim, you are on a journey to somewhere and the place where you are currently, you do not currently belong. And each and every one of us knows that. We're just passing through. But as we're passing through, we talked about last week, you could be that person in search of a great treasure, 
and you're settling for lesser treasures. You're getting distracted by all the flashy objects around you and you want to stay a little bit longer. It reminds me of the great story Pilgrim's Progress. When Pilgrim, when Christian and his friend are walking through the enchanted ground and one of them says, you know what, I'm feeling kind of tired and maybe, maybe if we take a nap just for a little bit, if we just lie here for a little bit, we will feel rested and it will actually help us on our journey because we've taken time to just slow down. But Christian rightly pointed out that the ground was enchanted and those that fall asleep never get up. He says, let us not fall asleep as others do, but all the more as you see the day approaching, let us, let's run this race with endurance. Let's get out of here. But I feel like some of us, myself included, can, can fall into this temptation where you look around at your surroundings and you forgot that you don't belong here. You forgot where you're going. Have you ever stepped into a room and forgot what you were doing and why you came into that room? Doesn't that annoy you? It's just like, I know I was here for a reason, but I don't, what do you have to do? You have to retrace your steps, go backwards, rethink about it. Sometimes in order to know where you're going, you have to think about where you came from. Isn't that true? It was true for the people of Israel because as they were leaving Egypt, the place of sin where they're in bondage and slavery and they're in the wilderness period, going to the promised land, it was in the wilderness they forgot what Egypt was really like. They said, you know, I don't think it was that bad. At least we had a place to sleep. At least we had a home. I know there's those people that beat us up and mistreated us and we didn't have any freedom, but at least we had food. They forgot what Egypt was like. And I feel like some of us we'll find ourselves stumbling back into sin because we forgot the consequences of our sin. You know what? I just, you know, it's been a while since I thought about that thing. It's been a while since I indulged in that thing I used to do. And maybe it really wasn't that bad. And because we forget the road of sin leads to destruction. Because we forget the consequences, the pain it caused our family, the pain it caused our friends, the pain it caused our bodies. Be because we forget that, we stumble right back into it. But as pilgrims, Peter is saying, listen, I know you will get distracted. So don't be distracted. As a pilgrim, as a sojourner, I beg you, beloved, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Now, some of us might read this and we know that sin wages war against our body. If you're an alcoholic, you'll see that take its toll. You'll see if you drive while drunk and you get into a car accident, you automatically, you see the consequences of your sin. But he's saying it's not just waging war against your flesh, against your body, it's waging war against your soul itself. And that's why we have to abstain from it. And when he says this, He's not just talking about abstaining from sexual promiscuity. Because some of us might read this and think, okay, he's talking about pornography, the end. That's not just what he's talking about. This is all-encompassing. Fleshly lusts can include more than just the bad things, the things I did that I know are wrong. But it can actually include things that, on the surface, might not seem that bad because, of, after all, everybody does it. 
Everybody has fantasies. When you're laying there on your bed at night, you think about, you daydream. When you're in class, you think about your ideal world where that guy or that girl falls in love with you. That ideal world where you always win. That ideal world you have envisioned in your mind when you win the trophy, when you, you get the A. When people praise you, when that person who hurts you is punished. We all have those visions in our mind. But realize the biggest problem with those fantasies is you become God of a fictional world in which no one has free will. You become the emperor, the hero of your story, which you don't have autonomous beings that actually get to make decisions. The girl that thinks you're crazy suddenly falls in love with you. In your daydreams, the people that are better than you lose. The people that are stronger than you fall away. The people you're upset with fail and you rise up. But it's this very concept which is going to wage war against your soul. Listen to what Wayne Grudem says. He's a commentator. He says, in comment, commenting about this passage, he says, to entertain such desires may appear momentarily attractive and entirely harmless since the desires do not usually break forth into wrongful actions, but they are in reality enemies which inflict harm on the Christian's soul, making him spiritually weak and ineffective. You know, not everything that you desire is bad. But if it's done outside of God's will, it is sin. Jesus, when he was tempted in the wilderness, what was he tempted to do? Satan said, if you are God, surely, and you're hungry, you can command the stone to become bread. It's easy for you. You're God. Why don't you just do it? Now, the fact that Jesus was hungry and wanted to eat bread, was that sinful? Can you imagine Jesus being there and, oh, I can't desire to eat things because that's bad. No. Obviously, he had a good desire. However, if it was done apart from God's power and apart from his timing and apart from his will, it would have been disobedience and would have been sin. And I feel like sometimes we know there are certain things that are wrong, even though expressly they're not really anything bad. It's just not in God's plan. Well, there's nothing really bad about me wanting to be with that person. There's nothing really wrong about me going over here or being on this website or doing this thing. It's not as bad as over here as what they do, but I'm going to do this one thing. And you rationalize in your brain that it's okay. Forgetting, this is how you get rid of all gray areas, by the way. Because you're going to have to confront this. When you turn 21, all your friends start drinking because it's okay because you're a Christian, whatever. Here's how you get rid of all gray areas, whether you get tattoos, whether that's a sin, whether it's not a sin. If you think about, instead of what can I get away with, instead of what can I do, you think about how can I draw closer to Jesus? How can I please my heavenly father? How can I fall more in love with God? If that is your priority, like Jesus said, you fulfill the whole law by doing these two things. Love the Lord your God and love people. Love your neighbor as yourself. By doing those two things, you fulfill the whole law. Because the law was never about the rules. The rules were to bring you to Christ. Once you have Christ, you actually, guess what? You don't need rules once you have Jesus. Because you're guided by the relationship. And that is the measure by which you determine whether things 
are right or wrong, harmful or helpful? Does it draw me closer to Jesus? Do I fall more in love with God by doing this thing? And if that's the case, you automatically rule out everything else. Well, I guess, you know, even though it's not necessarily bad for me to desire success, for me to desire that person or desire to be married or whatever, even though those things aren't really bad, I don't even have to think about those things because I'm asking, thinking about the fact that each and every day is a gift from God. It can be filled with excitement. Every time there's an opportunity to sin, there's an opportunity to please the Lord. Did you know that? Every time that Satan tempts you with something, there's an opportunity to do what God is calling you to do. And in fact, maybe, could it be possibly that the moment you were the most tempted is because Satan wants to distract you from what God is really trying to tell you at that moment? If that's the case, and God has a mission for every one of us, every day is filled with excitement, and instead of indulging in the flesh, you abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against your soul, you deny yourself and you follow Jesus, you discover you never even needed those things to begin with. They're so worthless, they're going to leave you empty anyway. Why, why even bother with those things? So Peter is saying, don't get distracted with things that ultimately aren't going to satisfy you anyway. Ephesians 5, 8 through 10. We talked about this last week, but Paul the Apostle says this, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. In other words, don't forget where you're going because you were once darkness, but now you are light. It's not one day you will no longer be a sinner. Do you realize when Jesus died on the cross, your, your sins were nailed there up on that tree? Do you realize when Jesus died, all your sins were paid in full? That the Bible doesn't say that you are a sinner. It never addresses Christians as you guys are sinners. But now you're to be identified as the children of God. So now that the story, the plot has changed, you're no longer in the introduction of the book. Now that you are a different character, it's time to live out who you're meant to be. Second point starts in verse 12. You can write this down. Your works are a witness. Your works are a witness. Look at verse 12. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So what he's saying is, all right, we know you're not that person anymore. You were once darkness, now you're light in the Lord. You were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. You're a different person. Abstaining from those fleshy lusts, what are you supposed to do? He says, having your conduct honorable amongst the Gentiles. Gentiles being a person who's non-Jewish. But he's not just talking about non-Jewish people. He's saying, as Christians, you are included in Israel to become the true Israel, not replacing Israel, but you are one, grafted in with Israel so that everybody else, now we can refer to them as the Gentiles. And so amongst unbelievers, in other words, your conduct should be honorable. What does conduct mean? It's just a daily pattern of life. The things that you do should be pointing to God. 
Instead of the fleshy lust, instead of indulging, you should be doing good works because your works themselves can be a witness to the power of God. This is why Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount, he gave the instructions, hey, listen, if a person asks for your cloak or your tunic, give them your cloak too. If a person says, hey, go with me a mile, go with them two miles, do things fundamentally different than everybody else. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Realize this, because we are Christians and because we don't have a residency here on earth, we don't have to keep anything. Because our treasure is in heaven, if we actually live out that belief, guess what? Everything I have is borrowed. So why am I going to hold on to it anyway? When you lend something to somebody else, how many of us do this? I'm guilty of this all the time. You only lend it to people that you know will be faithful to return your thing. You'll give a book if a person gives it back. But what God is saying here is like, I gave you that book in the first place. The reason why you bought that book is because you have money that I gave you. So why are you going to hold on to anything? Are you like, oh, I don't know if I can pay for this person's food. I don't know if I can pay for this person's trip or pick them up or I don't have gas money. It's not yours anyway. You're just a steward of what you have. And if we really believe that our citizenship is in heaven, then everything we have here, we should be freed up to just use resources to bless other people. Did you know, did you know that the first hospitals were actually started by Christians? Shortly after, around the second century, Christians being so changed by the gospel, changed by what Jesus did for them, started to actually live it out and said, hey, listen, let's not just f treat people that we love. Let's treat people we don't even know. Let's, let's seek to heal people, seek to give medicine to the sick, to the poor, the people that we have no idea who they are and we'll probably never know them ever again. Just bring them into our homes and treat them. This is something that you can look up on the internet too. I'm not just making this up. A professor, James McClellan of Stevens University said this, thus in, in, inpatient medical, medical care in the sense of what we today consider a hospital was an invention driven by Christian mercy and Byzantine innovation. So he himself says in his book about science and technology over the ages in history, point to the fact that Christians are behind hospitals. And many hospitals today are started by religious organizations. So you may be thinking about how to reach your unsaved neighbors, friends. Maybe as we've been talking about impact light, living in God's house together, bringing the light of Christ wherever we gather, going out in the communities, blessing other people. You have no idea how to do that. Well, why don't you start here? Start with being hospitable. Being a person that other people want to be around. Why don't you start baking things for other people? Being like Jenny. Always brings in great cupcakes. Everyone be more like Jenny. Sorry to put you on the spot. But start doing it for people you don't even know. Start doing nice things. Like, I, you know, I'm just even thinking about some of, some of my unbelieving friends. I can feel stingy, right? Sometimes it's like we go on a trip together and like got to make sure everyone pays equally and stuff. But what's so bad about paying for their gas money? What's so bad about paying for their food? paying for their meal, just blessing people, just simply because Christ has done so much for you that you can just freely give to other people. You don't really even care. The Bowery Mission. Every year that we do that trip, it's an opportunity to do good to other people that can pay us back. 
And that's one of the reasons why we've done it time and time again. So when people ask you, why do you do that? You can say it's because of the love of Christ compelling us. Praying for other people, doing random acts of kindness. Why? Because that when they speak against you as evildoers, it says in the verse. Did you know there will be times that people speak against you as evildoers? There'll be times that people just look at you and just say, because you're a Christian, you're probably a hypocrite. You're probably judgmental. I mean, today in our society, this is happening all the time. People label Christians as haters, and so they have to make Christians. I'm a Christian, but I'm totally not judgmental. Like when we saw that video, everyone thought it was like the weirdest thing, most awkward thing, and totally misrepresented Christians. So anyway, people will at times speak against you as evildoers. Are you giving them ammo? Are you giving them reason to say that Christians are liars, thieves, just like everybody else? And he uses this phrase here. It says, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. What does that mean, in the day of visitation? Well, in the word here, it's talking about bishops, which may not help you at all. Supervisors, overseers. In those days, an army general would be called a bishop, kind of the same root word, was an overseer who would come in unannounced to make sure the army, the troops, were in line. And so he would either reprimand the troops for not being on duty, not being prepared, or he would give them praise for rightly being ready to enter into battle. But he would often come in unannounced, just like God is going to come back and give praise, give honor to those who accept him, and on that day also, be able to punish those that did not. And so what he's saying here is, by our good works that they observe may glorify their father in the day of visitation. What he's saying is, the day that God comes back unannounced, your good works might have the opportunity to lead someone to Christ so they can join you in glorifying God together. So what a powerful witness. Your works can be a witness. If we would simply love people as the Bible is calling us to, People will be transformed. In Genesis chapter 26, there's a story where Isaac is digging up wells that his father Abraham had uh, dug up back in the day. But then the Philistines came by and they buried every one of those wells. So Isaac, knowing where those wells were, started to dig them up and, and would get water flowing out of those wells again. Well, Abimelech and the people from Gerar were really upset that Isaac was coming into their land. And so they asked him for the first well, he's like, you got to get out of here. This is our well. Thanks for digging it up, but this is our well. And so he named that one opposition. Then another well. Isaac found another well that Abraham made. And so he dug that up too. And then the, the same people, Abimelech came by and said, no, this is our well too. And then there was a third well that was far away from the land. And he was allowed to keep that. Well, Isaac, think about this. If you're in Isaac's shoes, you'd be like, uh, really? Like, my dad is the one who made this in the first place? So if you want a well, you can dig up your own well. But he didn't say that. He just let it aside. He didn't fight. He didn't quarrel. He just left. And he dug another well, and another well, and another well, until he had three. Well, actually, this is what happens. In Genesis chapter 26, it says that one day, King Abimelech came with Gerar, came from Gerar with his advisor, and asked, why have you come here? 
Isaac asked. You obviously hate me since you kicked me off of your land. And they replied, we can plainly see that the Lord is with you. So we want to enter into a sworn treaty with you. Let's make a covenant. Swear that you will not harm us just as we have not troubled you. We have always treated you well and we will send you away from us in peace. And now look how the Lord has blessed you. So actually, think about this. By Isaac being respectful, not quarreling, not fighting over that well, moved on to another well, guess what happened? He actually made peace with the people of Abimelech and he got three wells, not just one. If he just stayed with the one and just fought over it, he's like, no, this is my land, you guys get away, and argued, he won his one well. He would have kept that one well and missed out on two more. And so the way that we treat people, even when we're mistreated, can give witness to God and what he does in people's lives and transforms them. Here's your next point in verse 13. Honor God's authority by honoring his subjects. Honor God's authority by honoring his subjects. So as we're living in this hope, your works can be a witness and you also can have a witness through your honoring of authority. Verse 13, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So he says, since you're Christians, you may feel tempted to be like, you know what? Since God sees us all equally, since I'm not of this world, since I'm only a pilgrim, I'm a sojourner, I don't belong to this kingdom. I belong to the kingdom of God. So I don't have to respect any authority. I can just do whatever God's calling me to do, forget everybody else, kind of a thing. But he actually says here, Peter says, that we are to, as Christians, submit ourselves to every ordinance of man. Now, he doesn't just say, submit yourselves to your parents. Submit yourselves to higher authority, the president, the governor. He says, every authority. So think about this. That means every legitimate human authority, parents, school teachers, youth leaders, police officers, presidents, governors, every ordinance of man. Why? He says, look at the verse, verse 13, for the Lord's sake. What in the world? How is it that honoring authority, honoring ordinance of man will honor the Lord? Because everybody knows here that some of the ordinances that people make are stupid. Everybody knows here that when you go home, you're going to be thinking about all the dumb things like speed limit. Why is it 15? It doesn't make any sense. 50 miles an hour isn't even possible. And you think it's stupid. But he says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. Well, I guess I, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe I don't have to obey that. It's a new covenant thing, you know, New Testament thing. It's like, oh, man, so do we have to be legalistic? Does that mean that we have to? Like, if I go, because all of you are going to be driving the car with me, you're going to be like, Alan, you, you know what you tell on Friday. What does this mean? What he's saying here is, 
when you're submitting to authority, you're honoring God. You're doing it for the Lord's sake. And so the Bible tells us this in Romans chapter 13. It gives us a clue as to why this is. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Ouch. What God is saying here is, I think I'm in control. I think I'm sovereign. And if that's the case, then the people that are in authority are the people that he placed in authority. It's not a mistake. And some of us may really believe it's a mistake. There's no way that person should ever be allowed to be a teacher. No way this person's ever qualified to be a parent. And we look at them, we judge them, and think that we're better than them. It's like when you have the, the basketball coach, nothing against your coaches, but the coaches that like look completely out of shape, look like they've never played basketball in a day in their life, and tell you what to do. You're like, really? Like, what do you know about basketball? The only reason why you're here is because they can't find anybody else. But to submit in honor, respect them, respects God. And to rebel them is to rebel against God himself. <gasps> that seems scary. Because you and I know there are some people that say stupid things, give you stupid orders, and ask you to do things that don't make any sense. But God himself has placed those people here. And so Colossians 3 says, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Serve the people. Honor and respect the people that are in authority above you as if you're honoring Jesus himself. Now, what does this look like? That means that you submit to the consequences of your actions. When your parents discipline you, even though it's outlandish, I did nothing to deserve my phone getting taken away. Did nothing to deserve being grounded for a month. You submit willingly because you honor the Lord. And you, you check your heart. You know, it's always a good thing to, to act like the psalmist says, Lord, search me and know me. Try me. See if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me to the way everlasting. You know, that's, okay thing. that's an okay thing to pray. It's an okay thing to say, Lord, if there's anything bad, because there's probably a lot bad, show me what it is, because I don't want to do anything that's displeasing to you. And so maybe even when people are over the top, that's okay to submit to their authority. Maybe when you think about having your provisional license and it's approaching curfew and you think, well, as long as I don't get caught. Or you think, as long as nobody knows I'm adding more than one friend in the car, then it's okay. But God knows and God sees. Who are you honoring? Are you there to honor man? Or are you there to honor God? Thinking about, and by the way, driving past curfew, this is very easily solved by, I'm gonna, this is probably gonna get me in trouble. I can write you a note, by the way, for religious reasons, so you can drive past curfew. That's a surprise. You didn't know that. And your parents are going to get mad at me, but it's true. Um, torrenting. What about that? It's not stealing music. I'm not stealing the program. It's there for free on the internet. They shouldn't have put it up there. That's a huge thing when I was in high school. I don't know if it's still a huge thing. Maybe it's not anymore. We had kazaa and LimeWire, stuff you probably have no idea what those, those things are, but Grogster, 
gave you all these viruses on your computer because you downloaded. I remember like to download one song took like three days because you all had dial-up modems. And then, <laughs> oh, the world I used to live in. Anyway. So you guys know I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here. I'm not going to like be checking in the cards like how many people you have in here. That's between you and the Lord. But why do we submit to those things? Why do we obey those things? It's a witness for everybody else. Now, you might be thinking, but if I start doing those things, all my friends are going to make fun of me that aren't Christian. Well, guess what? That's okay. It's okay to be made fun of because you're a Christian. Did you know that? It's okay to be weird, to do things differently, to not be that person that smokes like everybody else, that drinks like everybody else. That's okay. You have permission to be awkward because you are different. But here's the problem, because this is what I used to do. Back when I was 21, which is a long time ago now, six years ago, first turned 21, people, you know, non-Christian friends would be like, hey, you want a sip of my beer, you know, some of my drink, whatever. And my reaction would be like, oh, no, I can't. And I would hear that, and I was just like, oh, my gosh, how is that a witness to anyone? It's like, I wish I could, but I can't. And you should be just like me, a Christian. What do you think? We all do things that we, don't, we want to do, but we can't do. Instead, to do it, saying, listen, the reason why we, we obey these rules, the reason why we submit ourselves to authority and ordinances and punishments and why we take it is so that we can honor the Lord, ultimately. Now, here's a question that you might be thinking. What if the rules are sinful? What if the ordinance is against what God commands? Well, it goes back to you're doing it for the Lord's sake. Obviously, don't displease the Lord in what you're doing. But I think most of us know that's a cop-out. We're rationalizing like, well, if I don't drive, then I won't be able to honor God by serving at church. So I'm going to drive even though my parents grounded me. That's not okay. The best example is to look in the Bible for examples as how people respectfully submitted to a higher authority. Daniel, when there was an ordinance that, says, that said anyone who prays will be thrown into the lion's, lion's den. What he did is he still submitted to the authority by submitting to the consequences, by saying, you know what, that's fine, I'm going to be thrown in the lion's den. He didn't run away, he didn't disappear, he said, that's fine, I'm going to trust the Lord in this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we would never bow because we bowed to no one except the Lord. And they were thrown into the fiery furnace. Practical examples, okay, because let's say, I mean, honestly, the whole driving thing, speed limit thing, I'm not saying that to make you feel bad, like this is what Christianity is all about. Let's go to a little bit more practical examples. What do you do when your employer says, I want you to work on a Friday night, Sunday morning? What do you do? Here's what most people do. This is not judging anyone in the past, by the way. This is just what happens. Every year, if you're a junior, this is going to happen to you at some point. You're going to come up to me and say, well, they want me to work Friday. That's what happens. The reason why they work Friday or work Sunday or whatever isn't because they really need the money. Isn't really because... They want to work on Fridays. It's just because they're afraid of asking for time off. And so because it's kind of like when you ask to hang out with your friend and your friend flakes on you and doesn't flake on somebody else because you have a better relationship with them. Like, well, I know you'll forgive me, so I'm going to, sorry, like I haven't seen this person in a long time. You mind if like we hang out a different day? Like that's messed up. That's like believing since you're good friends, it's going to be okay and they'll forgive you no matter what. Anyway, so... Every year, every year what happens is because you've been conditioned all your life to just say yes to authority and not ask any questions. 
Why am I being grounded? Because I said so. Why can't I go out? Because I said so. And you're just supposed to say yes and not question it. When you become 17, 18, it's the first time in your life that your teachers, your bosses, employers tell you to do something and you can respectfully decline because you submit to a higher authority. What I'm not saying is if you work Friday night, you're in sin. I'm not saying that. Don't get that from this. If you work Sunday morning, you're not in sin. I've done it before. That's fine. Here's the problem, though. People aren't doing it willingly. They're doing it because they're afraid of disappointing people. I'm going to lose my job if I, if I say I can't work Friday. If you lose your job, then why would you be a help to them in the first place? Because the whole reason why they want you to work Friday is because they need you to work Friday. So if they can just eliminate you, they obviously don't need you Friday. Does that make sense? So anyway, the point of the matter is every employer on the planet knows you're not going to work seven days a week. Just tell them, I can't work this day and I can't work that day. Respectfully. And if they put you on, surprise, you can respectfully confront them. It's a good habit to, to learn to cultivate, to respectfully say no, because you've got better things to do with your time. So anyway, that's one rant. Another way you can apply this. What if you're in school and the school, and I'm, this isn't legal, but let's say the school prohibits prayer. You can't pray in school. You can't read your Bible in school. They tell you to do things which technically aren't constitutional, but that's the mandate of the school. Do you respect that? Well, it depends. I'm not saying that every single case you're supposed to like pick it, bring out the signs and say, ah. Oh. But respectfully, you can say, I'm sorry, but this is something that I believe in. This is something that is close to me. And what I'm doing isn't illegal. This is allowed. You're allowed to pray in schools. In college, I was asked to write a paper advocating for homosexuality. And I'm like, can't any more, you can't get any more biased than that. But they told me I was supposed to write a paper that advocates for homosexuality. Probably because the class I had to take was a gender studies class. But anyway, so taking this class, writing the paper, I basically, I was teaching in Ignite at that time, and I was teaching on homosexuality. I basically took all my sermon notes and I put it into the paper and just made it in paper format. So she read the whole thing, and she's like, but how are you advocating? Because it seems like you're saying it's sinful, the entire paper. I was like, yeah, I am. But, like, I'm still going to be their friend. That's how I'm advocating, because, like, I'll stand up for them by being their friend and stuff. Like, yeah, but that's not what I want you to write. But that's not what I believe. So what do you want me to do? You can give me an F, but here's the problem. I was a really good writer. And they know, like I got published in Monmouth University's newspaper before. They knew that I was really good, and I was a great student. So they wanted me to succeed, so they didn't fail me. So that's what I'm saying. So by your good works that they observe, they'll glorify their father in the day of visitation. So here's how you, you kind of like subvert that. If you're just a great student overall, when people come and speak against you as evildoers, they'll know, like, you're a great student. You're a great person. So if it's this one thing that they're picking on you about, like, oh, you pray in school, oh, you say that homosexuality is a sin, other people that aren't even Christian will defend you because they know you're a great person. But here's the problem. If you've never done anything good for anybody, no one's going to stand up for you. Like, yeah, the kid's a jerk. Yeah, like, he deserves to be punished. So... Cultivate that lifestyle now. Now, what if, what, if, what if you're being mistreated by authority? Well, actually, think about this. Because maybe you're thinking the punishment doesn't fit the crime. And what they're doing to me is just harsh. Peter's writing this during the time that Nero was emperor. Nero ordered Peter to be crucified. 
And Peter, according to church tradition, asked to be crucified upside down. Many people beheaded. Many Christians were tied and, and lit on fire as candles in Nero's garden. He was a tyrant. He was a maniac. Yet, here, what's, what it's saying is that we are to submit even to harsh authority. Look at verse 19. Or verse 18, sorry. It says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience towards God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. So paraphrase, what does it say? In, in the New Living Translation, this is what it says. For God is pleased, in verse 19, God is pleased when conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course, you don't get any credit for being patient if you're beaten for doing wrong, but if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. So here's the next point. You don't get to choose who to submit to. You don't get to choose who to submit to. If it's the case, if it's the case that you are mistreated, you're punished for something you didn't even do, that's okay. Because the Lord sees and the Lord is going to be the one that justifies you. He's going to be your defender. But here's the problem. When we are harshly treated, we will naturally want to take revenge into our own hands. Isn't that true? When we are wrongly blamed, we want to defend ourselves. We want to take it out on somebody else. But you have two options. You can defend yourself or let God defend you. When I was in third grade, I remember I was uh, going to the bathroom and some of the kids, like, I was really tiny, really scrawny. Some of the kids were playing a prank on me and, like, wouldn't let me out of the bathroom. And because they're, like, all big kids and I was a tiny kid, I was trying to get out. I was like, ah, screaming, third grader, Alan, crying a little bit inside, not outwardly, because I was still a man. And the teacher walks by. She sees us like fighting over this door. All of us get detention. And I was like this poor little kid who just wanted to get out of the bathroom. Is that so wrong? And so I've never, here's the other thing, I never received detention in my life. And so I cried so much. Like you remember those, I don't know if any of you had this, but you have this like behavior board and you have like a little clothespin. It starts off like good and then moves to warding and then detention and red all the way at the end. She like took my clothespin and like moved it to detention. And I just went nuts. I was ah, crying. I cried so hysterically that my mom had to come and pick me up in the middle of school. She's like, it's okay. It wasn't like, it's going to be all right. She's like, look, look, moving it back. You're good. And I was just, I was so distraught. And so I didn't get detention, long story short, and I felt like, I felt relieved, a little traumatized. <laughs> but here's what I found. That doesn't work anymore. I can't just cry about things and people are gonna feel bad for me. Maybe for girls, I don't know. Just, I'm just saying, maybe. If you guys cried in front of me, it'd probably make me feel bad. I'd probably take back whatever and beat, beat someone up. But, point is, We'll often want to take matters into our own hands. The better thing to do is to entrust God who judges righteously. Look at the next verses. 
in verse 21. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here's your last point. We are called to suffer. We are called to suffer. And that's what it says in the verse, that you are called to this. Actually, in 2 Timothy 3.12, it says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So it might seem strange that you're suffering for something that you didn't deserve, suffering for a crime that you didn't commit, but isn't that exactly what Jesus Christ did? And we should expect, if we're going to roll with Jesus, if we're going to fall after him, that people will do the same thing to us. Accuse you of doing things that you didn't do. Blame you for, blaming you for wrongs that you didn't do. But if we fall like Jesus and have the heart of Jesus, instead of taking revenge on other people, we can extend the hand of grace like Jesus. Instead of feeling anger towards someone, we can pray like Jesus did on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We can extend that love and that, that grace. Not, not, we're not su suppressing anger or expressing anger, but we're submitting anger to God, trusting that he's the ultimate judge. So the real question is, do you trust that God is in control? Do you trust that God sees everything that's going on? And if that's the case, every time that you suffer, it's an opportunity to trust that God is going to work it all together for good. Romans 8, 28, you know the verse. So in closing this evening, how we respond to suffering, how we do good works or lack thereof, how we submit to authority, all these things will be evidence to other people of whether we are believers or whether we are not. Whether we can actually practice what we preached. To say because there was a person who lived and died and he rose again, this changes everything. And because it's changed everything and has made the way possible for you, let me explain what it's done for me. I don't have to expect things from people. I can do things for other people. I can give things to other people. Now I can submit to people. It doesn't matter whether a good person or a bad person. It doesn't matter whether the, the rule is good or dumb. I can say I can respect that rule because by doing, that, by doing it, I'm honoring my father who I can't see who is in heaven. And when I even, when, even when I suffer and I'm wrongly accused for doing something I didn't even do, when people punish me, when people say things about me that aren't true, you know what, that's fine because they did the exact same thing Jesus. And what did he do when people falsely accused him? Did he defend himself? No. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. He could have at any point in time just called down a legion of angels and wiped everybody out. But he didn't. Because he did it for them. They didn't know what they were doing. Now imagine, imagine if there are some people that are going to be saved on that day. 
disciples, people rejecting him, and Jesus just went crazy. Just let's, let's say he just went in a violent rage and started exacting revenge on everybody. Got off the cross, he's like, that's it, I've had enough, and starts killing everybody. Imagine he started doing that. And then there were people that survived. How guilty would they feel? You think they would walk their Christian life believing Jesus has forgiven them? The mind, the picture in their mind would be Jesus taking punishment, exacting justice on every person that wrongfully put him on the cross. But instead, the picture that everyone has of Jesus is the one who submitted to God even when he was wrongfully persecuted. Saying, it doesn't matter how much you do to me, I'm still going to love you. And we can extend that same love to them as well.